1: All right. Some of you who are paying very close attention may have noticed my voice was conspicuously absent for a couple of days. And actually, that's the reason why it was conspicuously absent is because uh, when there's a wild swing between cold and warm temperatures, for some reason, that is the perfect incubator period for the mother of all colds. And so I have been uh, nursing my first springtime cold. And I got to tell you, it was a doozy. And as always, it goes right for the throat. But I'm back today. I'm in fine form and fettle, and uh, <laughs> there's a lot to talk about. So much. Let's begin by thanking the sponsors who make this program possible. They include Dixie Chiropractic. You can check them out at DixieChiro.com, HSLAMMO.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. wanted to start today, this is kind of an oddball topic, but it, to me this is one that... Uh, that gets to the heart of so much of what's being beamed at us 24-7. And that is basically the idea that everything that came before us was wrong. It was superstitious. It was evil. And here's an example of what that would look like. For instance, were you raised to believe that prior to 1970, women were ruthlessly oppressed in our society? You know, the patriarchy reigned supreme and essentially our lives were like uh, a handmaid's tale, only worse. Okay, there are some people who sincerely believe this. Paul Rosenberg would like to set the record straight with a defense of 1950s housewives. And he says, I believe that women are inherently as valuable as men and that impositions put upon them because of their sex are crimes. But he says, I don't believe this because of politics. I believe it because of experience. Young people these days know beyond any shadow of a doubt that women... Before 1970 or so were suppressed, deprived of education, and legally raped by their husbands. Questioning this dogma can be dangerous, but he says, I'm telling you the dogma is false. My mom, her friends, and many other women who I knew were not dupes, cowards, weaklings, and victims. Whoever wishes to can hate me for this, but he says, I was there. I know what I saw, and I will defend the women I loved. So what you know, or he says, what I know, and you may not. He says, yes, women have been mistreated over the centuries and still are. Ask a young woman how many of her peers have been sexually assaulted. You may be shocked by her answer. But that doesn't mean that abusing women was acceptable before 1970. Were some wives treated badly? Of course. Women have been mistreated all of of human history. But so have men been mistreated and children, too. We have large human problems to fix and they manifest themselves all across the human spectrum. Now he says, I lived through the housewife era, and I knew a significant number of such women, and I knew a large number of men and women whose births stretched back into the 1870s. So I had a lot of direct experience with women of that era. And what I'm writing here concerns what I personally saw and experienced, so here are some essential points from Paul Rosenberg. He says they were generally not forbidden education. Now, forbidding education was and remains a despicable thing. It's that way in Afghanistan, but it wasn't that way in America between 1900 and 1970. Boys and girls had fairly equal access to grammar school and high school. He says, I don't think I knew any housewife who hadn't graduated high school. Furthermore, there were literally hundreds of women's colleges. In fact, he says, my mom went to one, and so did many other women. One of my aunts, born in about 1890, was a highly successful lawyer. Now there were indeed cases of denial such as the one that Emmy Nether Nother rather had to overcome but it wasn't all oppression and evil as the narrative maintains. And he says women like my mom wouldn't have stood for outright exclusion. These were intelligent housewives with the ability to carve out some free time. They could be a powerful force if someone or something got them angry. Also they voted. Now prior to 1920 voting was forbidden to women in some US states, but many others, especially in the West, had long allowed women to vote in 1820 or 1920. Rather, it was mandated for women, all women in all states. He says, My mother could vote as soon as she came of age, as could my grandmothers. Then there's also the notion they were economically essential. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, Before I get to details, allow me to dispense with the theory that a lack of economic value that is, a job made women powerless creatures who could be tormented without recourse. That theory rests on a Marxist po- Marxist posit that the lowest kind of economic power, the mere possession of dollars, dictates who can abuse whom. Bypassing the false and insulting assumptions implied by that belief? You can check it by finding an anarcho- anarcho-capitalist or a voluntarist, the purest of free market capitalists, and ask if they think only monetary transactions matter. They'll look at you like you're nuts. Money as God is something only Marxists and maniacs really believe. So he says, I'll illustrate this point with a very stark example, that of a rural housewife in a poor family during the early years of the 20th century and with an abusive husband. Now he says, the woman in this situation, however, was not a confirmed victim. Here's why and how. First of all, the housewife was absolutely necessary. Husbands who lost their wives would generally be ruined and quickly. You cannot buy yourself, farm your land, get the crop to market, feed your children, cook your meals, pay your land mortgage, wash and mend everyone's clothes, tend a vegetable garden, carefully preserve and store your excess crops, and so on. Men who lost wives in those days had to remarry promptly. If not, disaster followed. Now, while this wife had no economic value in the measurable as GDP sense, she had tremendous real value and thus leverage if she needed it and the woman in this story did need leverage. After being beaten up and telling her husband that she wouldn't stand for it, the brute came home drunk and beat her again. She waited until he passed out in their bed, then got out her sewing kit, and she sewed the sheets together all the way around him, leaving him drunk and bagged. Then she pulled out her iron skillet and beat the hell out of him. So when the rotten husband sobered up and healed up, did he kill the wife? No. He went back to his chores as if nothing had happened, except, of course, He stopped slapping her around. Now again, consider his situation. If he killed the wife, he and his children would be going hungry by the time the funeral was over. Paul Rosenberg says, even confirmed bastards dislike watching their children starve, or at least being a public failure. On top of that, he'd have to face the revulsion of the other men in the community. However undeveloped they may be, most men have an instinct about hurting women, as in we are disgusted by it. Any man who is known to abuse his wife is excluded from the company of decent males. Now, he says, you can trust me on this or you can call me a liar, but I've spent decades in gyms and on construction sites with thousands of men. And I'm telling you, nearly all of us detest a guy who beats his wife. So the woman of our example was was uh, or for the woman of our example or for the better off women of my mom's place and time being a housewife was not the same thing as being powerless. And yes, that is a true story. He says, My mom paid all the bills. She did the family accounting when it was necessary. She set me up to manage the house and went out to work. Once my parents had some money, she managed the investments. It was she who called the stockbroker and coordinated real estate purchases. Most housewives believed themselves to be in a partnership with their husbands, and they were not delusional. Daily life was a lot harder as you go backwards, and two people were quite necessary to run a family. Home economics was a serious course of studies in those days, and not the joke it's been portrayed as more recently. And by the way, he says marital rape was always considered degenerate. Young people are under the impression that marital rape was acceptable 50 years ago. Well, he says, I'm telling you, it was not. Anyone who spoke out in support of such a thing would have made themselves an instant outcast." Now, were there marital rape laws? Yes, there were some. How they became law? I don't know. But he says politicians have always been buffoons. So what if a few of them pass some insane edicts? Political stupidity has always been. Finally, he makes the point they were not kept at home. All those millions of nurses were clearly not kept at home, nor were the switchboard operators, secretaries, typists, housekeepers, clerks, and so on. Forcing a woman to remain at home deserves condemnation, but that was in no way a universal problem. Now, did husbands and wives fight about how to arrange things? Of course they did. They still do. But to claim enslavement is simply false. Given that there were millions of families, it might have happened, but he says, I never saw it. So he says, what I'm telling you is this. The women of my mother's generation were not the pitiful characters they're made to appear They faced obstacles, but pushed forward and made just as much progress as the current generation of women, perhaps more. On top of that, he says, women of my mom's era had options that are forbidden by the modern narrative. Under the narrative, seeking a husband and children, the number one choice of women from time immemorial is excluded, demeaned and punished. According to the narrative, grandma and your want a family now sister are not valid women. That's not a way forward. It's a way to set up an abusive clique. Paul Rosenberg says the vast majority of housewives were and are not doormats. And grandma's generation brought women to where they are now. And trashing their memory is just another kind of abuse. So the goal is clear. Women should be unrestrained because of their sex. The modern narrative, however, cuts women off from their actual benefactors like grandma and turns them against one another. His point is we can do better.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Very happy to welcome my friend Caleb Franz back to the program. He, of course, is the host of Profiles in Liberty podcast, as well as he jumps on here every other week and does a a history and action segment with me. And, Caleb, it's great to have you on board. I guess we're looking forward to a nice Memorial Day weekend, and that's that's what we're going to be talking about today.
2: That's right, Brian. Uh, it's always good to be here. Uh, always good to to be able to relive some of these stories and, and some some new and fascinating ways. And uh, this weekend, as you mentioned, is Memorial Day, and uh, you know, Memorial Day is a is a holiday that I've I've always really uh, appreciated. It's uh, something that's been sort of near and dear to me uh, for a long time. Um, where I'm from the area that I'm, I'm from uh, has uh, it boasts the record of the longest continually running Memorial Day parade uh, in the country um, so this has always been something that's that's been very much a staple this time of year has always been something that's been very much a staple um, and uh, and and the more I, I learned about the, the history of this holiday and, and the history of uh, the individuals involved, uh, the more uh, deeply I care about it, in particular, this story that I, I ran across uh, that we're going to be getting into today, I think really encompasses not just the not just the spirit of, of the holiday itself, uh, but also just sort of the, the spirit of of what the American idea is, is really supposed to be about.
1: Well, I know. No one is going to be sad about an extra day off on Monday, but I love that you're right. kind of coming back to the roots of the holiday, and, and I think it's, it's wise to, to figure out why this was happening in the first place. So where do we begin? Where, where does it originate?
2: Yeah, so uh, Memorial Day is a is a holiday that uh, originally referred to as Decoration Day after the Civil War uh, occurred because uh, the idea was that we, as uh, as a people, would go to the grave sites and go to cemeteries uh, across the country and decorate the graves of the fallen soldiers uh, from the Civil War. Obviously, this was an incredibly uh, bloody and divisive time in our, in our uh, country's history. So it, it was sort of this unifying factor. Uh, the first one, um, on record at, at least, uh, goes back all the way to uh, 1868. Uh, this uh, took place in Arlington Cemetery. Uh, and uh, of course, there was uh, a, a big uh, commemoration and, and, and celebration of sorts of uh, commemorating the lives that had been lost, but also celebrating um, the fact that we were able to move beyond uh, this occasion. Now, this wasn't actually the first, uh, necessarily. There had been, uh, there had been uh, parades or celebrations or commemorations of some kind throughout localities in the United States. Uh, for some time in, in the in the years prior, in, in in the few years in between the end of the Civil War and that uh, that uh, celebration at Arlington Cemetery, uh, the a lot of a lot of uh, localities like to claim that they were actually the first uh, throughout right. American history. It's it's kind of unclear as as what the actual first one was. Uh, some in uh, New York, for example, or Georgia. Um, Have claimed to be the first dating back to 1866, one year after the Civil War. But there was actually one uh, that predates it uh, in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And that is sort of the focus of of the story that I want to highlight here um, that uh, took place a mere month, less than a month after the Confederacy uh, surrendered. um, And it was put on by the uh, freed slaves of the area and, and and predominantly carried out by the free uh, freed slaves in the area um, uh, and uh, the the volume and the magnitude of the celebration was quite remarkable uh, you had thousands and thousands of people and this racetrack that used to be a prisoner of war camp for union soldiers uh, and what I think is really incredible is that the very first thing that, uh, that these, these former slaves did was not to, even though they, they surely would have been uh, vindicated in doing this, it wasn't necessarily to retaliate uh, or to seek vengeance against their former masters. The first act that they did was to commemorate uh, a gravesite of those prisoner of war Union soldiers uh, who died at that uh, space. Uh, And uh, make sure that they were honored and that uh, that sense of honor uh, above any sense of vengeance, I think, really encompasses that that spirit uh, that uh, that America was supposed to be about.
1: Wow. I you know, I knew that uh, I knew the Civil War had had a a key part of this, but somehow I had it in my head that this had gone back even further. But um, how did it spread generally from observations, you know, starting in, in the, the South to to where it's generally a holiday um, that, that's recognized all throughout the United States. Is this something that other states were eager to, to embrace, or did, did this take some time to, to thread its way through society?
2: Well, yeah, it, uh, it, it was something that I, I think that regardless of, of what side of the war that uh, any particular state was on, um it affected everyone uh pretty pretty equally uh, there there was always someone who had a, a father, a brother, a son, someone who uh, fought and and very likely died in this massive conflict uh, between the north and the south. Um, and uh, everyone had had good reason to want to commemorate those lives and had good reason to want to. Uh, want to move forward and make sure that nothing like this was ever going to happen uh, again. Um, but in in that instance in uh, in South Carolina, I, I think it 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 highlights something more than just commemoration. Uh, it highlighted the the need for celebration and the need for uh, celebrating uh, liberty and celebrating the idea that that regardless of what the war started out to be you know this is something that even is is disputed and and contentious even to this day about whether or not the civil war was actually fought over slavery um regardless of of what it started out as that became the defining issue and and this was in large part thanks to abolitionists like frederick Douglass, who uh who who ensured that uh, that if we 're going to fight this thing, it needs to to come at the end of slavery uh, and this this celebration of of all these former slaves uh going to this racetrack to to uh help uh, help celebrate uh liberation and liberty uh, I think really encompasses that spirit quite well
1: I know the the most common method of celebration that, that I grew up with was okay so this is the day we go we put flowers on graves are there any other Memorial Day traditions that are perhaps lesser known that uh, you've learned about as you've studied this
2: you know one thing that I, I think that uh, really stuck out to me was was how much um, how much uh, faith played a played a role in a lot of these figures uh, especially uh, on that day in in May of uh, 1865. Uh, and I think it, even if it's not necessarily uh, something that persists in every single celebration that we've seen since um, it was very important at that time because uh, they had gone through, through hell and back basically. Uh, and, and I think that was uh, something that's the, the quiet moments of, of being able to reflect before being able to celebrate the uh, the the victory in, in, of, of, of Liberty was uh, something that that really stuck out to me.
1: All right. Again, we are talking with Caleb Franz. He is the host of the Profiles in Liberty podcast. Caleb, tell people where they can find this podcast and check it out for themselves.
2: Absolutely. Well, I appreciate it, Brian. You can always go and find uh, Profiles in Liberty wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, there are now two seasons out. And I'm currently working on season three, which should be coming out this fall.
1: Okay. You'll keep us posted. And I look forward to our next get together here in a couple of weeks.
2: Absolutely. It's always a pleasure.
0: This is the Brian Hyde show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Man, it feels good to get back behind the microphone. There has been so much going on the last couple of days. Before I plow further ahead, let me start by thanking Dixie Chiropractic and encouraging you. If it's you or someone you know who's dealing with pain, be it from car accident injuries or bulging herniated discs or even neuropathy, contact DixieChiro.com. Just like it sounds, DixieChiro.com. Here's a $99 intro special for those with bulging and herniated discs. That's two treatments plus massage. Or if you want to look into neuropathy treatments, here's the $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. Go to DixieChiro.com for more information. Again, that's DixieChiro.com, the offices of Dr. Ward Wagner. Tell them thank you for being a sponsor of this program. So the Texas elementary school shooting, I know it's been on a lot of people's minds and there's still a lot of unanswered questions. In fact, the, the, I think one of the things that's that's really disturbing a lot of people right now is the fact that uh, authorities are not being very forthcoming on what exactly was the timeline. And it certainly appears that there was some kind of a delay in going in and taking out the gunman, which uh, may well have contributed to to an excessive number of deaths. Now, I want to give these guys the benefit of the doubt, but... The the more authorities uh, ham and haw, and the more it appears like they're just trying to get their story straight before they say anything official, the worse it looks for them. And I've talked to a number of friends who are either former or current members of law enforcement and, you know, to a person, they've all said, look, the, the training that we have is if there's shooting going on, your job is to sprint to where the shooting is and and take care of the shooter. Now, if that puts your life at risk, then they say that's that's the price you pay. Uh, in fact, one of them went so far as to say, my understanding is my life is forfeit, especially if there are innocent kids involved. And if I don't take him out, then the cop behind me is likely to do it, or maybe the one behind him. But the bottom line is they are to go and get him immediately. So I don't know what uh, what the timeline is and everything, but I know this. The predictable authoritarian responses were like mere minutes before they were being beamed about. The president, of course, is going to fly down there and um, mumble through whatever, you know, comments come up on his teleprompter. And there's going to be the predictable calls where we need to disarm everybody because, you know, this one person did something. But there's a descending point of view on mass shootings from Michael Siegel that... uh, I don't know if you'll agree or disagree. There were pl- parts of it that I agreed with, and there were parts that I was like, I don't know about that. But it's it's a pretty refreshing approach that he takes here. And I think this may be more rooted in finding the solution than simply we got to ban guns or we got to blame them or blame this, blame the cops, whatever. Listen to what he says. This is about mass shootings, rampages, and cascades of failure. Michael Siegel says, airplane crashes are incredibly rare. The odds of dying in one are approximately 1%. Per 14 billion miles traveled. That means it's the safest form of travel, and nothing else is even close. You are more likely to die driving to the airport than you are to die in an airplane crash. But he says it didn't get that way on its own. Airplane travel has been the safest form of travel for a while, but it has only improved over time. And the reason is twofold. First, Airplanes are built with a lot of redundancy, and pilots are exquisitely trained to deal with emergencies. Indeed, when an airline or an airplane rather crashes, it's rarely a result of one thing going wrong. It's usually a cascade of multiple things going wrong, a series of mistakes, errors, and mechanical failures that manage to weave its way through the layers of safety checks, redundancy, and training. But every day, airplane crashes are prevented by the regulations, innovation and training we've poured into preventing them. Now he says the second reason is that we refuse to accept that crashes are just going to happen. Whenever an airplane crashes, the NTSB does a thorough systematic investigation. They figure out precisely what went wrong and figure out if it's a problem that's likely to reoccur. And if so, they make recommendations or issue mandates on what needs to change to prevent it from happening again. As a direct result, Airplane travel, which was already safe, has become even safer over the decades. Now, Michael Siegel says, maybe I'm being too much of a scientist trying to apply the rules of logic, reason, and data to a situation whose tools, uh, those tools are unsuited for. And perhaps comparing airplane crashes, which are usually unintentional to the horror that unfolded in Texas, may seem like a stretch. But he says, I think the comparison, while imperfect, is illuminating. He says, like airplane crashes... Rampage shootings are rare, and rampage shootings at schools are incredibly rare, a literal one-in-a-million chance. The majority of gun deaths are suicides. The vast majority of the remaining are the day-to-day individual shootings, mostly connected to the drug war. Like airplanes, schools are incredibly safe. A child is more likely to die on the drive to school than in school. Like airplane crashes, there's usually not only one thing that caused a mass shooting. They're usually the end result of multiple failures. Someone got a gun who shouldn't have. Someone didn't get help who needed it. A cop on the scene made a bad decision. And like airplane crashes, he says, I'm convinced that we prevent far more than happen. Most would-be mass shooters are diverted somewhere along the way by getting psychological help or by being denied a gun or finding the safety procedures too intimidating, etc., And like plane crashes, their rarity does not diminish the visceral horror we feel when one happens. However, unlike airplane crashes, rampage shootings are increasing. And unlike airplane crashes, we seem to have a political establishment that, in response to each bloodbath, either retreats to familiar ideological corners or throws its hands up and says, essentially, mass shooters go to mass shooter. Now, Michael Siegel says a lot of people want to believe this paralysis is because of nefarious forces like the NRA. But he says, I think it's something much more mundane. The cause of mass shootings don't fit neatly into ideological priors. And there is no clear-cut, obvious solution to them. Oh, there are plenty of people who think they have the answers. But while those answers aren't necessarily wrong, the solutions at best are only going to help on the margins. Democrats always want more gun control, but there's little supporting evidence for policies beyond what we're already doing. Securing schools and arming teachers is the Republicans' favorite issue. But it's hard to imagine we can make our schools more secure without turning them into literal prisons. The most recent school shootings have taken place at schools that already had extensive security measures. Mental health has also been raised. And with the caveat that the mentally ill are more likely to be victims than perpetrators of crime, he says, I think there is some merit to this. The U.S. has not only one of the highest rates of mental illness in the developed world, but because we are the only developed country without universal health care, has a massive problem of untreated mental illness. But that may only help at the margins as well. The mass shooters with mental illness had already been diagnosed with them. Moreover, there's clearly something more to this than guns, cops, psychologists, and security theater. There's something deeply diseased about the way people are navigating through the world that we aren't talking about, that we may not even know how to talk about. Seven years ago, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about the recent tendency of would-be shooters to congregate online, praise past shooters, fantasize about doing the same, and in the rare cases where they act on it, build on past shooters' methods to up their body counts. Now, it's not clear what, if anything, we can do about that, but it's revealing something much deeper, much darker, and much more dangerous than our current approach is capable of dealing with. So what he's saying here is he says, I don't necessarily have an answer here, but I think we need to change the way we look at these things, not as single point failures with one solution, but as systematic cascade failures with a set of solutions, not as isolated individual events, but as a symptom of something wrong in society as a whole. Any time one of these shootings happens, it is thoroughly investigated, but mostly as an individual crime. We study them as isolated tragic incidents rather than a reflection of something much larger. The reports about the Sandy Hook massacre, for example, can tell you everything you want to know about the shooter's methods, mental health, and the failures around him. But it's still fundamentally approached as an isolated incident, not a manifestation of a growing problem. So, cutting to the chase here, he says... Calling for a study of the problem is probably the most inside-the-beltway cliché imaginable, but he says, what other options are there? Clearly what we are doing now, proposing never-never gun control measures or shoving more cops into schools and pontificating on mental health, isn't working. What else can we do but break each shooting down to its components, sift through the rubble of wrecked lives and hope that something emerges, or more likely a host of somethings, That's doable. In other words, approach it the way the NTSB approaches an airplane crash. What if we looked at gun control and mental health and social isolation and open threats and then try to combine those approaches to make a cascade less likely? His point here is that shouting at the darkness will not help you find your way out of it. You have to start walking. You have to feel your way around. You have to use what limited means you have, and he says maybe approaching this issue as a systematic failure rather than a series of isolated incidents won't let us completely out of the darkness, but it might let us get to a place with a little more light and a little less heat and maybe a little less death. Now, again, I I know there are people who have, well, there's one solution in mind, and probably I've, I've taken that approach more often than not. But I like the way that Michael Siegel is approaching this. So I would encourage you, read his article in its entirety. It's linked in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If nothing else, it's just an interesting perspective on a very
0: real problem that is causing deeper and deeper divisions. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Want to give a quick shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. That would be my friend Spencer Worthington and his wonderful company creating high quality new and remanufactured ammunition. Great way to uh, further your own skill at arms. Why does skill at arms matter? Well, because it gives you options. That's that's one reason. And if you are in the market for ammo, I would strongly encourage you, go to HSLammo.com and see if they have what you're looking for. Especially for my listeners in southern Utah, you'll be doing business with a hometown business as well as a really, really great guy, that being Spencer. And it would also mean a lot to me if you would support HSL Ammo as one of my sponsors. You know, the practices that guard human civilization are being steadily forgotten. Max Borders has a new book out called The Decentralist, Mission, Morality, and Meaning in the Age of Crypto. And he describes how politics is the pathology, but morality is the cure. I wanted to share a couple of excerpts from his review of his own book. He starts with a quote from the movie Conan the Barbarian. This is from Tulsa Doom. What is steel compared to the hand that wields it? Now, Max Borders says there's no more exciting and anxious time in an author's life than launch week. The book you've spent nine months writing and three months preparing will be tested in the market. And the market is made up of people with all sorts of opinions. So he says, I just launched The Decentralist, Mission, Morality, and Meaning in the Age of Crypto. My first reviewer gave the book one star out of five, writing, though I found some information useful and the author's initial intentions as shown in the introduction resonating, A large part of the book has to do with self-created morality and meaning, which sounds a lot like an anti-government plus New Age cult. Max Porter says, Ouch, that stings. Yet, I'm reminded of the editor's admonition. It's more about how readers perceive, or receive rather, your work than what you intend. So, rather than arguing with the reviewer about what they got wrong, he says, I'd rather talk about what they got right, one star notwithstanding. He says, my hope is, despite my having to take some lumps, that the Decentralist challenges readers. Now, he says, this description, the anti-government New Age cult, while hyperbolic, contains a grain of truth. In other words, the Decentralist is designed to read like the text of a secular religion, Jeffersonian Esoterica. He says, I knew I was taking a risk, but I had to try. I've lamented the loss of religious affiliation in America in past columns. I believe this loss has led to a decline in an essential source of community and moral teaching. Today we see the consequences of that decline. He says, I also worry that for many, there's no going back to that old-time religion. Though decentralism is commensurate with most religions, still, those who have strayed from their flocks are experiencing civic, moral, and spiritual malnourishment one cannot sustain social coherence with politics alone. And that's one of the major lessons of the book. So he says, before we move on to the idea that politics is a domain distinct from morality, I should briefly address a couple of additional points. First, the decentralist is not precisely anti-government. Now, it will almost certainly come across that way to centralists. More subtly, it is anti-authoritarian. In other words, instead of the one ring there should be many rings. Instead of one powerful nation-state, there should be many smaller countries. Instead of one imperial power with one true way, there should be competing, self-organizing jurisdictions that can function as independent experiments. They can rise or fall according to their ability to attract and retain citizens, or uh, he crosses that out and says customers. Let a thousand systems bloom and let the people vote with their feet. What better way to create local experiments than to provide opportunities for people to opt out of and into systems. Indeed, localized experiments that fail are preferable to national experiments that end in total catastrophe. See, this idea is radical, but it isn't new. And he says, that's why I base the Decentralist on a more familiar piece of secular scripture. Quote, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed that when any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. End quote. Now, Max Border says, I'm pretty sure King George the Third thought this sort of revolutionary poppycock was positively new age at the time. But in building on the founders' wisdom, He says, my goal is to inspire readers to finish the revolutionary project, whether in America or abroad. And here he talks about six spheres and six offenses, saying the health of a people lies in each's commitment to morality. The ancients referred to virtues because these were moral commitments to be practiced and not just abstractions plucked from the air. So in The Decentralist, he says, I identify six moral spheres Number one, nonviolence, to refrain from making others worse off in their person or property. Number two, integrity, to be of one's word and to honor one's commitments. Number three, compassion, to be attuned to others' value as individuals and thus to their suffering. Number four, pluralism, to be tolerant of others' perspectives and seek facets of truth in them. Number five, stewardship, to take care of one's property or offices, leaving them better off. At number six, rationality, to seek truth by employing the, the facilities of reason. Now, he says one might not consider the six spheres sufficient, but they are necessary for maintaining a society of peace, freedom, and abundance. So when my reviewer says I'm flirting with self-created morality, I can agree to the extent that without conscious, continuous practice, our moral universe starts to disappear. Being good takes work, not just lip service. Now, the six spheres have vicious mirrors, which are practices that can destroy the social order. The six offenses are, number one, violence, to threaten or initiate harm against others to compel them in some way. Number two, corruption, to use unscrupulous means to some end, such as wealth or power. Number three, callousness, to show indifference to the suffering or plight of others, Number four, monomania, to labor under the idea that there is one true way and no other. Number five, negligence, to shirk one's responsibility to care for her offices or property. And number six, tree. that's a word I've not encountered before. That's to employ specious or deceptive rhetoric instead of good discourse. Now he says, note that centralists, in other words, those who worship in the church of state, Think of the six offenses as political strategy. According to centralists, the ends justify the means. Strategy is amoral. Indeed, for centralists, policy craft is the sum of morality and the end of political strategy. Far from being immoral or destructive, the six offenses are just how the sausage gets made. But we shape our rules, and then our rules shape us. Max Borders says the more we reduce moral practice to political strategy, the more we create social malignancies. And he walks through each one of those six offenses and explains how they are used politically to advance a cause, but that they come at the cost of our uh, collective morality. So he says, whenever you aim at centralism shibboleths, you're going to irritate some partisans. Most people want to see their priors confirmed. When you fail to confirm their priors and offer them some medicine, some will spit it back at you. But I remain undeterred. He says political sports teams have replaced moral practice. And most people have become too comfortable with expanding political power. Now, of course, these two concerns are related and self-reinforcing. One way or the other, we have to bring morality back. While crypto technologies are promising anti-authoritarian tools, they are works in progress. Scammers, hackers, and other bad actors threaten to bring down these nascent ecosystems before they mature. But a mature crypto industry promises to be a powerful check on authority. People of conscience must fight to protect them. And that takes mission, morality, and meaning. And he says, that's the reason why I wrote The Decentralist. Max Borders says, the world is forgetting timeless truths, distracted as they are by political spectacles and errant ideologies. So even if that means shouting into the wind, we must do everything we can to rediscover the human practices that guard civilization. Without mission, morality, and meaning, no human system, centralized or decentralized, can thrive. Still, we also have to decentralize power. It's not merely that empires fall as night follows day. The growth of the managerial state is wreaking havoc on innocent people. And he says, we have to speak for them. I've got a link to this article in the show notes, and I hope you'll take the time not only to to read the article from Max Borders, but maybe consider availing yourself of a copy of his book. I found him to be an especially uh, sound voice in contributing to a better understanding of what's going on around us, as well as uh, some of the likely solutions. By the way, please take a moment to get acquainted with my sponsors. You'll find them linked in the show notes at the BrianHydeshow.com. Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah would be one of the big ones, I would say. Talk to them. If you or someone you love is into sewing or quilting
0: or long arm quilting or embroidery, these are the guys you want to talk to.